Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Coming up on today's show, Seth Barron will talk with Steve Malanga and Ralph Manguel about their cover stories for the summer 2019 issue, which we packaged under the larger section in the magazine called The New Disorder. In the 1960s, as City Journal readers know, the American city entered a downward spiral, one leading to decades of violent crime, widespread disorder, and bad economic policies. As progressive mayors embraced ill-advised ideas, they only chased away more residents and businesses to the suburbs. By the 90s, though, cities began to retake control of their streets with smarter policing that focused on crime and quality-of-life concerns. Those reforms allowed cities like New York to enjoy a new era of prosperity. Now, unfortunately, all this is at risk. A new generation of progressive leaders have emerged who are reverting to the very ideas that once led to urban decline. Last week, we released Ralph's essay from the issue, and it's already received a lot of attention. You can check it out on the City Journal website, and we'll link to it in the description. Steve's essay will be available online soon. That's it for me. The conversation between Seth Barron, Steve Malanga, and Ralph Manguel begins after this. Welcome back to 10 Blocks, the podcast of City Journal. This is your host for today, Seth Barron, Associate Editor of City Journal. I'm joined by two colleagues, Steve Malanga and Rafael Mangual, to discuss articles they've written for the summer issue of City Journal. Steve is a senior fellow at Manhattan Institute and senior editor of City Journal, wrote an item called The Cost of Bad Intentions. Ralph, a fellow at Manhattan Institute, wrote... Everything You Don't Know About Mass Incarceration. Both pieces are included under a larger heading in this issue, The New Disorder. Steve and Ralph, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, pleasure to be here. So, Steve, you say in your piece that progressive politicians in our major cities are working with bad intentions. That's a bold statement. How can you defend that? Well, I mean, pretty easily. Uh, we went through in, a, in America in the 60s and 70s and also in the early 80s, an era of uh, civic and uh, urban disorder. Cities like uh, New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago uh, saw uh, rising crime, very high crime rates, uh, homelessness, dr- uh, drug trade. And um, th- this uh, contributed to, for instance, um, decline in a population in places like New York City, uh, the flight of the middle class to suburbs. We reversed that trend in the uh, 90s, really, thanks to uh, a whole bunch of policies that included, you know, really uh, the New York City's uh, uh, war against the street crime, for instance, uh, and vagrancy, um, made the cities, made cities um, uh, orderly again. Now, even though we've had 20 years, 25 years of that re- restoration of order, of, a, of a, far, a far safer cities, we're starting to see policies that once again tolerate the kinds of you know, social disorder that we saw in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Toleration of op- open toleration of, of open drug use, 
um, uh, people living on the streets again and being allowed to, uh, to, to live on the streets, um, open-air drug markets, uh, 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 needle exchanges happening in places like Seattle and Portland, um, human excrement, uh, uh, you know, it's San Francisco, you know, something like 60,000 reports by, you know, filed with the police of, you know, just of human excrement on the streets. Uh, uh, disorder in the subways in New York, fare beating, which was um, really uh, reduced uh, uh, in the subways. It was a, it was a, a pervasive problem uh, in the 70s and 80s. A fare beating, uh, beating has returned. The MTA says they're losing something like $200 million a year now thanks to this. And, 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 and in part, that's because prosecutors in Manhattan are no longer prosecuting minor crimes like fair beating. So what we're seeing is a return to the kind of um, policies that uh, tolerated small acts of social disorder, which grew into uh, uh, much larger problems. And uh, it's very clear that, um, that uh, we, we see rising crime rates. Uh, we also see uh, uh, rising levels of uh, homelessness, toleration of this. And um, it's being framed, uh, you know, by a whole kind of series of um, progressive politicians around the country uh, as uh, uh, things like homelessness are being framed as an economic problem. When the thing that we learned in the 90s is that in many cases, uh, it's not because, you know, it, uh, 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 the people who, for instance, are uh, fair beating, they're not fair beating, you know, in a place like New York City uh, because they can't afford the subways. For the most part, it's if you allow them, if you give them the opportunity, if you don't enforce the laws, people take advantage of that. So we're seeing a direct result of this uh, in, in a whole bunch of cities around America. But the intention is to um, keep people out of the criminal justice system and uh, to keep people from getting wrapped up in, um, you know, what, what people have called, you know, the various pipelines, the school-to-prison pipeline, the, you know, subway-to-prison pipeline. Um, Ralph, y you take issue, though, with the idea of mass incarceration, um, but it's indisputable that the United States imprisons more people per capita than any other developed nation. So how is it that... Uh, mass incarceration isn't a problem. And I guess I'd want to connect the, the, the two pieces. You know, I mean, don't, is it, do we want to see people on the street getting sucked into this carceral system? Yeah, look, I think one of the first things that we have to make clear is that the sort of crimes that Steve is referring to don't actually ever end up with prison entrances when they're enforced, right? That It is a it is just patently false to assert that the enforcement of quality of life crimes and lower level offenses like fair beating leads to an increase in the prison population. Prison tends to be reserved for our most serious violent offenders. And we know this because there's extensive data reporting on who's in prison, right? And the vast majority of prisoners in the United States are in for serious violent uh, offenses, and almost all of them have uh, pre-existing um, records that 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 had led to that decision in the first place right one of the things that people don't really realize is that only about 40 percent of felony convictions in the united states result in a prison sentence that's a relatively small uh 
number, given that the, the majority don't. Um, and, and a significant number of the people, in fact, the majority of the people who are going to prison for serious violent offenses, for example, already have pre-existing conviction records, right? So that's one thing that, that we need to clear up. But this, this off-lamented fact that the United States has a bigger prison population than other developed nations really fails to take into account a couple of things. For one, it fails to take into account the fact that the United States has a, a much higher rate of very serious gun and violent crime, like murder, for example, right? In the context of the gun control debate, you often hear the same Democrats calling for criminal justice reform, lamenting the fact that um, the United States has, you know, a higher rate of shootings and murders than other developed nations, particularly Western European democracies. Um, so that's one thing, right? I mean, we have a higher incarceration rate because we have more of the serious sorts of crimes that tend to lead to incarceration in the first place. The other, though, is a matter of resources, right? The United States is a very wealthy nation that has the ability to direct resources toward its criminal justice apparatus in a way that some other nations perhaps do not. And those things um, are what drive the differences in our incarceration rate, not just some you know, bloodlust for um, seeing people behind bars. It's also important to understand that the enforcement of quality of life laws is important, number one, and these are things that we learned during the 90s. Number one, because they often lead us to violent criminals. People who are doing things like fair beating, all right, when you crack down a fair beating in the New York City subways, what happens is a substantial number of the people that you arrest are people that we find that are, that are out on, uh, there are warrants out for them for more serious crimes. Okay? So one of the things that quality of life enforcement does, okay, is it leads us to those people okay, that we can remove, uh, you know, because they, have, they do have a record or they are, are wanted for violent crime. The other thing that's important to understand is that is that when you allow, if you will, let's say something like fair beating, you will, or you allow openly allow aggressive panhandling, right? You create uh, a sense of unease within the society, which essentially sends the message that no one's quite in charge here, and that's the thing that you know that that in a, in their famous article about broken windows George Kelling and James Q Wilson said that's the kind of thing that take that 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 encourages people who might not actually break the law that makes them more willing to if you will we call it sort of he calls they call them kind of like marginal cases that makes them more willing to consider you know breaking the law and that just creates a kind of a rolling uh, disorder within the society. And so it's it, it, this, this idea that um, we shouldn't enforce quality of life laws because we don't want people to get caught up in the criminal justice system only winds up catching more people up in the criminal justice system. But isn't there an extent to which um, like a constant police presence and the constant um, criminalization of poverty and just normal everyday activity, um, doesn't that also create like its own criminogenic effects? Well, first of all, I would say that it, you, it depends on what kind of police presence you are talking about. Um, the police presence that we're talking about, 
I mean, part of the problem, which again, Kelling and Wilson identified in their seminal article on this, part of the problem was that the police withdrew from communities. They withdrew from walking the beat. They withdrew from talking to the shopkeeper, the homeowner. And instead what they did is they got in their police cars and they reacted to crime. And so the, the police lost touch with the community. What we're talking about in terms of quality of life policing is having police back in the community responding to the complaints of citizens. See, here's the crucial thing to understand. You, you talk about this enforcement. I'll give you another example. One example is enforcement, for instance, of uh, marijuana possession laws. All right. And a, a, lot of, um, a lot of progressives point to arrests for simple possession of marijuana and say, why is this occurring? Well, one reason it's occurring is because people in their communities, homeowners, shopkeepers, call 911 or call 311 and complain. People in, uh, in public housing who, want, who, who don't feel safe because this activity go, are, is going on, they call to complain. And so the police are often reacting to what law-abiding citizens are asking them to do. And if you don't do that, you really create a sense, even within law-abiding citizens, that there's no, nobody's in control. Right. And it's not just the police. Uh, the, the important thing to keep in mind is that when police react, they don't necessarily have to react with an arrest. Right. Enforcement does not always equal an arrest. George Kelling and James Q. Wilson made very clear in their writings on broken windows enforcement that sometimes it's just as effective to have a police officer pour out the alcohol contents of an open container violator um, rather than put that person in handcuffs and send them to jail. Right. The reality, again, is, is that when it comes to things like, say, marijuana possession, you can probably count the number of people in Rikers Island uh, serving time for that kind of sentence on one hand on any given day in New York. Right. So that's number one. And number two is when people have the sense that no one is in charge of a public space, it's not only a problem because other people who are, say, on the margins may decide uh, that they're going to go over to the other side and commit an offense that they maybe wouldn't have otherwise committed in a more orderly um, public square. But good law-abiding citizens will also begin to avoid those public spaces. And that is important because in any society, no matter how big the police department, the primary enforcers of social norms have always been law-abiding citizens. But in order for them to do that, they need to have the confidence that they are going to be backed up both by their fellow citizens and by the police. And if you create the sense that no one is in charge in a public space, no one will get the courage up to tell someone who's littering, hey, pick that up, right? Because they, they'll be afraid of, of retribution and no one coming uh, to their aid. That's, that's a really key part of the broken windows theory um, and uh, of the broken window style of policing that I think often gets lost in these, uh, in these discussions. Okay. Well, y you've both mentioned marijuana and marijuana use. Well, all right. Marijuana use among black and white people is the same, but black people are arrested for marijuana violations much more. So isn't that just itself absolute evidence that that there's racial bias in the um, in the police in the in the way the police affect arrests. I don't think that's right, um, and in large part because of how 
police resources are deployed, right? If you look at serious crime in the United States, what you see very clearly and very quickly is that serious crime is hyper-concentrated, right? A relative handful of neighborhoods and a relative handful of cities are responsible for an outsized portion, say, of the United States' murders, right? Chicago's south and west side um, has a murder rate that's probably twice that city's uh citywide murder rate and several times uh, greater than the national average, right? So you have to look at where police resources are deployed. And the sad reality is, is that a outsized portion of our violent crime is concentrated in low-income minority neighborhoods, which is where police are going to be to begin with. That drives a significant uh, chunk of that disparity. And again, like Steve said, you know, sometimes some of this lower-level enforcement uh, effort is really kind of a pretextual attack on ser more serious and violent crime. The reality is is that criminals don't specialize, right? The same person who may jump a turnstile or smoke some pot on a corner may also be the guy who next week will pull a trigger, right? This this kind of it it really is kind of a false. Uh, way of thinking about this problem to categorize offenders as violent and nonviolent based on, say, the last thing for which they were arrested, right? There are um, many property offenders in our prisons, right? And um, violence rates in those prisons indicate um, very clearly, as well as their prior conviction records and recidivism records, um, that they don't actually always stick to nonviolent offenses, right? Take drug criminals, for example, and I point this out in my piece, more than three quarters of state prisoners who were released that were serving time primarily for a drug offense go on to commit a non-drug crime, right? There is a significant amount of overlap between people who engage in the drug trade and people who are pulling triggers and committing drive-by shootings, etc. And that is why police are concentrating their scarce resources in the most dangerous parts of the country, which unfortunately happen to be disproportionately minority. Right, and we frankly know, to, to answer your original question very specifically, the NYPD have testified and showed us that the 911 and 311 calls for complaints about marijuana are disproportionately coming from minority areas. So the, the, the residents of those areas themselves are making the complaints that, you know, and, and, and they're responding to the complaints by the law-abiding citizens in those areas, the idea is to protect those individuals. And, and so if that's where the complaints are coming from, it shouldn't be shocking that that's where the arrests may be coming from also. Well, what about the, the, the concern that, that gentrification is driving these complaints? Yeah, I'm not sure that's the case at all. I mean, if you go to, uh, for example, uh, police community uh, meetings and, and different precincts around the city, say in East Harlem, for example, where I know, where I live now, the last time I went to a, a police precinct community meeting, there were, um, I think, 95% of the people in the room were blacks, and they were very adamant about needing more enforcement for quality of life offenses. There was a Puerto Rican man, actually, who... Um, got very upset because he didn't feel that the police were doing enough to respond to his complaints about teenagers smoking pot in the courtyard of his building. And he wanted to know how he could sign his building up for the safe hallways program so that the police could have access to enforce these kinds of offenses. Right. I, I really do think there is a disconnect between what we're told about how certain communities feel about policing um, and, and law enforcement and, and what those 
law-abiding citizens of those communities actually ask for. Right. And frankly, if, uh, if gentrification were driving this, then we wouldn't see the disproportionate number of complaints coming from public housing in New York City. Well, that's an interesting point. Um, Mayor de Blasio came to office in 2014, and he pushed for the end of stop, question, frisk as a primary police tactic. And, you know, he's been behind a lot of different progressive ideas, the decriminalization of uh, marijuana and fair beating and so forth. And a lot of people said that this was going to lead to a return of the bad old days in New York City. But crime has continued to go down, and New York City is safer than ever. So doesn't that kind of just blow a huge hole in the whole broken windows policing model? Not at all. New York has benefited from one of the longest, most sustained crime declines in urban American history. That sustained crime decline brought a lot of investment and huge demographic changes to New York City um, that function to basically insulate New York from falling into that sort of rut as quickly as it may have before, right? It takes a lot of time to undo 25 years of nonstop progress. The idea that it's going to happen overnight is nonsense, and I don't think that any of the people who oppose some of these more liberal policies ever made that claim. But the fact that the sky is not falling immediately does not render these things good ideas. Um, in the long run, um, I think we will see negative uh, externalities coming from these kinds of policies. And, and that, that is an important thing to keep in mind, that we only lose a little bit of progress really shouldn't be the measuring stick. We should continue to move forward. Um, and that means not adopting these kinds of policies that are very clearly associated with the negative outcomes that we want to eliminate, right? If you look at just some some other cities that have done very similar things, but perhaps didn't have the same uh, amount of progress that New York had, and I'm thinking here of Chicago, right? In 2015, late 2015 into 2016, their stop and frisk numbers went through the floor as well. Right? And, and there was a recent study that just came out actually last week by Paul Cassell showing pretty definitively that that reduction in stops and frisks was associated with a significant increase in murders. And we know that in 2016, murders in Chicago went up something like 58% after stops decreased by about 80%. Right, So the fact that it's, it may not be happening as quickly uh, in New York, again, does not render these things good ideas and does not mean that these are models that other cities that are more vulnerable than New York is should follow. Right. That's exactly right. Baltimore is another example. Baltimore instituted... Uh, Comstat. Uh, if if you watched the uh, the the uh, the, sh- the uh, cop show about B- Baltimore, The Wire, the very you know the HBO show, you you actually saw Com- Comstat meetings taking place, and they illustrated what was going on. So they instituted that, and frankly, in 2011, they got beyond be, below 200 murders, 197 murders for the first time in like 20 years or so. That's all been exploded by what happened with uh, the kind of anti-police uh, 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 attitudes that that emerged after Freddie Gray uh, and the Freddie Gray, the whole Freddie Gray incident. That caused cops in this the city to pull back. 
to become less aggressive. Baltimore is now back up over 300 murders. It didn't take that long for that to happen. And this is the crucial thing to understand. People really need to, uh, we, you know, in my story, for instance, I talk a lot about the rest of the country. I talk a bit about New York. The thing that's worrying about New York, for instance, is what's going on in the subways right now because, um, you know, that's one of the first signs of growing disorder. But the, the, the thing that's, that, that absolutely uh, separates New York City from so many other cities that have tried, where you've had reformers that, that, that you know, uh, Cory Booker in Newark, when he first came into office. Um, uh, Archer in Detroit in the 90s. Um, uh, O'Malley in Baltimore. Um, uh, so New York has had, New York had 20 years of two mayors who relentlessly pushed an agenda that continuously made the city safer. 20 years is a cultural change. These other cities have four or five years of that. And so snap and it's over with. And, and that's what we're seeing around the country. That's what we're seeing, certainly in Chicago and Baltimore. Detroit continues to struggle after, you know, with with this issue. Um, uh, New York, what we see in New York is a, a kind of a, 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 a worrying quick return to disorder in the subways, which really upset people because people in New York are so used to order right now that even just that kind of things like fair beating, I see it now. I haven't seen it in years, and it makes me anxious, you know. So, uh, but but we but it's also that's also part of the uh, of the message to people that you need to understand that to really reform a city, it takes sustained reform, and a lot of cities uh, haven't been able to do that. New York has been very fortunate that it's had 20 years, so it's affected a, essentially a cultural change, which only means that it would take more to undo that. Unfortunately, we're seeing the undoing in places like Chicago, in places like Baltimore, frankly, in Los Angeles, where, uh, where William Bratton, who was the New York City commissioner, went and did some great things there. And now we're seeing rising disorder again in, in, in L.A. And a lot of it is not just crime. It's also kind of an acceptance, a toleration of street living. Um, it's the idea that people on the street are victims of economic um, uh, circumstances in the United States rather than what we know is that a substantial number of people living on the streets have uh, addiction problems, at least 50 percent, perhaps more in some of these cities. And rather than intervening and getting these people into the system, we're now allowing them in places like Seattle and Portland and, and San Francisco to simply camp out on the streets, which not only disturbs the, the, the social order, but doesn't do them any good. Well, let me push back on, uh, on just something you said there, which is the idea that people are living on the streets and it's not an economic issue. I mean, all the cities you mentioned, Seattle, Los Angeles, San Francisco, I guess New York, these are all cities facing tremendous housing crunches. And, you know, we hear this all the time, that the cost of living in these cities has just skyrocketed. So, I mean, if there were plenty of cheap apartments, I assume that people would be um, living in them instead of living on the street. Even You can't even afford a cheap apartment if you don't have a job and you're addicted. If you, if you, if you have a job, there's a pathway. I'll give you an example. So this uh, television station in Seattle did a documentary on the problem, and they confronted all of the kind of progressive 
uh, uh, you know, uh, verities, if you will. And one of the things they, they looked at was the issue of who is on the street. And they said, there are no out-of-work construction workers living on the streets of Seattle. That's not who these people are. If you're an out-of-work construction worker, you can't afford to live in Seattle, you don't have a job in Seattle, you're going to go somewhere else and get a job. You're not going to live on the street. They said the people here are overwhelmingly people who are addicted, people who are coming here. They're actually being kind of attracted, if that's the word, because, because they're allowed to live and encamp there. They're being attracted there. They, 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 they're not working. They're not looking for work. They're not collecting unemployment benefits and, and finding, a, a, you know, looking for a place to live. That's not who they are. You don't. If, if, if apartments are too expensive in New York City, right, but you're able-bodied and want to work and can work, you don't just stay in New York City and live on the streets. You go somewhere else and find a job where you can afford to live. The idea that the alternative is I'm living on the streets because the, it, it, rents are too expensive in New York City ignores what we know uh, from surveys and that, that many people on the streets are addicted and, or they have mental health problems, some of which are, are a result of addictions, but some of which, which are, are just uh, other sorts of mental health problems, schizophrenia, uh, 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 it, which because of the, the closing of, of, uh, of mental institutions and the deinstitutionalization has left some people having to live on the street. But the idea that this is an economic problem um, is belied by the fact that people who are able-bodied and looking for work, you know, they go somewhere else if they can't afford to live somewhere. They don't live on the streets. That's not the choice that a rational person makes. So you would, you would disagree with the idea of housing first, that we should radically expand public housing and just give people apartments, and then they would get their lives together. Um, well, the only way that giving people apartments will help them get their lives together is if, along with that, we're pushing them to work, okay? So first of all, one of the big, uh, one of the big um, uh, changes in social policy in the 90s was welfare reform, which said that if you're able-bodied, okay, you can no longer simply continue to receive welfare benefits unless you go out and work for them and work, work, find work. And this process, the process of welfare to work, got millions of people, I mean, half a million people in New York City alone, off of welfare and back into the workforce. Right? The problem with so much of the homeless population is if you give people a, a, a place to live, all right, but they're not looking for work, then they're just going to be a ward of the state forever. So, you know, uh, housing first, <laughs> housing has to come with something else. It has to come, it has to, it, you know, it, it, and this idea, and this is a very progressive idea, that people can simply remain on government benefits forever. I mean, unless they really have some kind of serious problem that makes it impossible for them to work, right? just giving people housing is never going to get them off of government assistance. Hmm. Well, it's an interesting conversation. I'm not sure we settled all the issues, but we've <laughs> certainly tried dug into them a little bit. <laughs> well, we'd love to hear your comments about today's episode on Twitter at City Journal, hashtag 10blocks. If you like our show and want to hear more of it, 
please leave ratings and reviews on iTunes. This is your host for today, Seth Barron. Steve and Ralph, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.